Hello everyone and welcome to Not So Secular, the place where we talk about how the world we live in is not as secular as we often think. We just choose to see it that way. My name is Mon Reyes, I'm a youth missionary here in the Philippines and I will be your host here today. On this episode, we'll talk about Philemon. Philemon is the shortest letter written in the New Testament by Paul addressed to a guy named Philemon. (laughs) And what we're going to do is we're going to read the entire thing, the entire letter. It's super short, don't worry. And then afterward, we're going to offer some reflections, some observations on what this old letter, this ancient letter has to say to our circumstances, to our situation, to our culture today. Because it is so packed and I am excited for what's ahead of us. And so without further ado, let's begin. It's good to be back. If you listened to the previous episode, you'll know that I came from a five-day boot camp with our incoming youth missionaries. It's a retreat slash training type of gathering, and it was good. It was really good. I am grateful of the time we got to spend there, and I am also grateful that I am home again, back here, recording this podcast episode after a few days of rest, and I am excited for what's ahead of us. And so before we before we read the passage, the letter itself, let's give some background info. Let's give some context so that we know what we're getting into, so that we know, so that we understand better what we are reading. Like I mentioned before, Paul is the one who wrote this letter, Paul the Apostle. Paul as in the same guy who wrote Corinthians, who wrote Romans, who wrote Galatians, who wrote Ephesians, that guy. That guy who has gone from one place to another, preaching, proclaiming the gospel, planting these different churches, and who has had a huge impact on what the church looks like today. You can read more about his life in the Acts of the Apostles and on the letters that he wrote himself, including this one. However, the difference between this letter and most of his other letters is that this letter is not addressed to a community. It's not addressed to a certain group of people. It's addressed to a particular person, and his name is Philemon. It's like Timothy. The letter to Timothy is addressed to Timothy, not to the Romans as a whole, not to the Galatians as a whole, but to Timothy. This is written to Philemon. Philemon is a convert, a convert who lives in Colossae. He is a Greek Christian who has decided to follow the call of Christ through Paul's preaching, and he is wealthy. We know this because he's one of the people who hosts other Christians. That is how they used to do their gatherings back then. They didn't have cathedrals and parish churches during that time. What they would do is they would welcome each other in their houses. And so Philemon is one of those people who would welcome others. And he had this servant. In fact, his servant is the reason why Paul is writing to him. So his slave is named Onesimus. And if you're asking, yes, it's the same as the clothing brand, Onesimus. Biblical palayon. <laughs> and so, Onesimus is a slave of Philemon. Now, there's this entire conversation about slavery in the Bible. Does the Bible condone slavery? 
as people living in the 21st century, we have a common agreement that slavery is bad. But if slavery is bad, then how come it seems like the Bible seems to just gloss over the fact? How come the Bible doesn't outright confront it when people are being enslaved? Such as the story here that we have with Philemon and Onesimus. We might touch on that a bit on this episode. We might be able to talk about it more in another episode, but I think it helps for us to understand first that slavery looked different back then compared to how we would imagine it now. Because the way we would imagine it now is based upon the Atlantic slave trade and other examples that are similar, where one race of people, one group of people would capture another group of people, another race of people, and treat them as if they were not people and um, put them into slave labor and treat them as property. This is our main imagination of how slavery works. But in ancient Jewish times, slavery looked a bit different from how it looks now or how we would imagine it now. Back then, slavery was not just a race issue. It's not just a power issue. It was also an economic issue. Remember, this was a different time. They did not have banks. They did not have loans. They did not have mortgages. And when a particular person or family falls into debt that they are unable to pay with their money, one of the ways that they could offer to pay that is by offering their labor, by giving work. And that is a form of, quote-unquote, slavery. That is a form of how they understood it back then. That if you can't pay me with what you have, then pay me with what you can do. Of course, that is not black and white. There are other instances in the Bible itself where it talks about slavery which is a bit more similar to how we know it today, the form of slavery that we know today. We know it from the story of Exodus when the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians and they had to be rescued by God through Moses. We know this in other stories as well where certain kings would subjugate their people and subjugate other foreign people and put them through forced labor. The reason why I'm bringing up the economic side to it is because I want us to understand the context of what is happening here so that we don't import our postmodern and modern ideas into these ancient texts, into these ancient stories, and to allow these texts to speak for themselves. Regardless of the case, slavery, if not bad, if not evil, it's just not ideal. It's not how it's meant to be. Alright, let's go back to Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus ran away from his master, Philemon, and we have reason to believe that the cause of his running away is that he did something wrong. He did something bad. One suspected cause might be that he stole something from his master and he got caught. What this shows us is that he didn't just run away because he was a slave. He ran away because he did something bad. And so, when he ran away, he found his way to Paul, the Apostle Paul, who conveniently also knew Philemon. We also have reason to believe that during this time, Paul was imprisoned in Ephesus, and so he wasn't as mobile. He was writing this letter inside a jail cell. You'll appreciate this later because he makes some references to it. And so he writes to his old friend Philemon about his new friend Onesimus, and what he asks of them 
is for them to reconcile, is for Onesimus to make his way back home and for Philemon to welcome him back. That is what the letter is all about. And so, let's read it together. Having talked about these things on the onset, we'll be able to understand and appreciate what Paul talks about here in this letter. Let's read from Philemon. It's just one chapter, and I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version, Catholic Edition. It says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God, because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am appealing to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful, both to you and to me. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. One thing more, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Wow, <laughs> that was the entire letter. We read the entire thing. It's super short, like I said. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's more beautiful when you understand it. Because there are so many references, so many stuff that Paul says that he just assumes 
people understand. And it makes sense because this was written as a letter. It wasn't written as a textbook. It wasn't written as an encyclopedia entry. It was written as a letter to someone that he knew. And so he didn't have to explain everything. That's something that we need to understand when we're reading the Bible. My former professor used to say always to always read the text in context. Imagine if you weren't given that background information, if you weren't given that context coming into this letter. You could get a lot from it, but it helps. The context really helps. Sige, let's go through it. So Paul makes some references to Philemon being the leader of the house church. But what strikes me the most about this letter is that you could just see the kind of relationship that Paul had with Philemon. This is a guy that he knew. This is a guy whom he cared about. And it reflects with what he says. It reflects with his choice of words. It reflects with how he treats him. Because remember, Paul here is encouraging Philemon to act in a certain way as Onesimus, his slave, makes his way back to him. If Onesimus did do something wrong, then he was subject to punishment. And we don't know what kind of punishment he would get because of what he did. This is ancient times. Their justice system is way different from how it looks like today. And Philemon, being the master of Onesimus, had the legal right to allow him to go through the penalty, to allow him to go through the consequences of what he did. Now, Paul because he has also come to know Onesimus and he knows Philemon, hopes to reunite them in a peaceful way. And again, what's so wonderful about this letter is not just what Paul says, it's how he says it. Reading from verse 8 onward, it says, For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, Yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. Amazing. He doesn't force Onesimus to do the right thing. He doesn't shame Onesimus to doing the right thing. He doesn't order Onesimus, although he could. He rather appeals to him out of love. How different would it be if we could learn to do the same for one another? How different would it be if we could learn how to do the same for our parents, for our kids, for our siblings, for our family members, for our friends, the people that we care about, not just to try to force them or to shame them or to order them to do the things that we think are good for them, but to appeal to them from our relationships, to appeal, for, to, to, appeal to them from love and to help them see that what they are doing might not be something that is good for them or good for the people around them. Not by forcing them, but helping them realize that our actions are coming from a good place. It's coming from a, a place of sincerity. It's coming from a place of care. How different would it be if we could learn to navigate our relationships in this way? Yes, it would be very different, but it would also be very difficult. Because what that means is that we need to invest in our relationships. You can't just withdraw and withdraw and withdraw from your relationships without investing in it, without putting in it. It's like a bank. You have an emotional bank within us, within you. And 
We can't just withdraw and withdraw from people every time we make a mistake, every time we call them out on something, every time we do something inappropriate, do something that offends them. You can't just keep on doing that. In the same way, we need to be pouring into their lives as well. We need to be showing our affection, showing our care, being there, present with them in their difficult times. This is what relationships are all about. Now, I get it. There are different kinds of relationships. There are relationships that are more formal, that are more professional, especially when you are an employer or when you are a, a businessman dealing with your clients. It's It has a different dynamic, but in the same way, putting in care into it, putting in sincerity into it does not make it any worse. It just makes it better. It's funny because in verse 11, Paul even makes a pun. In verse 11, he says, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. The name Onesimus means useful. And uh, it's one of those things that are easy to miss because we're reading it in English and not in its original Greek. Anyway, reading onward, in verse 12, it says, I am sending him that is my own heart back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. This is a huge part of what we youth missionaries do. This is a huge part of what our youth ministries and our community, the feast, is ordered toward. We are all about making disciples. That is the great commission and that is our vision. But the way we do it is through relationships. The way we do it is by spending time with people, by getting to know them. In our case, as youth missionaries, we're referring to high school and college students. We want to spend time with them, enter into their world, allow them to get to know us so that we could also get to know them as well. This isn't just a one-time, big-time program or lecture series that we're offering. What we want to do is life on life. What we want to do is to, is to befriend them and to hear their story and to allow them and help them see how they can find their story within the context of the bigger story of God. And that sort of thing cannot happen if there is no relationship. If there is no friendship, I think I've heard it said from somewhere that people won't care if you know if they don't know that you care. And within these relationships, our goal is to connect them back to the church. Our goal is to encourage them to follow Jesus, to allow them to see how God loves, at least to a limited extent, by how we can love. Now, I love what Paul says next. He says, Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. This is the truth of the gospel that we preach, that we are all equal, that we are all sons and daughters of God, 
that we all have human dignity regardless of our place in society, regardless of our sex or gender, regardless of how we look at ourselves and how other people treat us. We have value within us by merit of us being made in the image of God. In Colossians 3.11, it says, In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all in all. There is this oneness that we find when we see ourselves the way God sees us. That's one of the things that I find beautiful about the church. That's one of the beautiful things that I find in community that we are different people coming from different places with different backgrounds, with different interests, with different personalities, all of these different strengths, different weaknesses. And the thing is, these, these, these differences are good because it allows us to work together in ways that would help us become better. But in spite of our differences, we are one. We are one because we have one thing in common and that one thing in common is that we follow Jesus Christ. That one thing in common is that we are His children. And if God is our Father, then what does that make us? It makes us brothers and sisters. There is oneness. That is one of the ways that you see, that we can see if the Spirit is moving, if there is oneness. This was one of the defining qualities of the early church. Because if you'll notice before, religion used to be tribal. Faith used to be tribal. The Greeks had their own gods. The Egyptians had their own gods. The Babylonians had their own gods. The Jews had their own god. However, when Christ entered in and revealed to everyone the kind of gospel that he has, the kind of good news that he brought with him, it paved the way for something greater. Now everyone is invited. It's not just limited to one ethnicity. It's not just limited to one people group. And this is something that we see straight from the time of Abraham, from before. The reason why Israel, the people of God, were called is not just for themselves. It's so that they could radiate. It's so that they could represent God to all the other nations. And by this time, in the time of Acts, in the time of Paul, this is something that we see because for the first time, people from different ethnicities are coming together and having a meal, sharing a meal with each other and praying and worshiping God. For the first time, you have people, slaves and masters, men and women, treating one another as people with dignity, knowing full that even though we're not the same we can be united. Paul talks about this in his letter to the Corinthians as well. He refers to the body of the church as the body of Christ and that Christ is the head and that we are the entire body. And the thing about the body is that there are different uses. The eye has a different purpose from the hand. The hand has a different purpose from the feet. The hand cannot tell the eye, I don't need you because the hand is different. The feet is different. The eyes are different. But when we are together, we are able to move as one. When we are together, we are able to help each other. When we are together, then we can function well. We can function better. This is true for the church and it is true for humanity. Some people might say that Paul is someone who condoned slavery because of 
the stuff that they find in some of his other letters about telling masters how to treat their slaves. But in this one verse that we see where he encourages, exhorts Philemon to accept Onesimus, not just as a slave, but as a beloved brother, this changes everything. This reveals to us what is really in Paul's heart. Again, we have to understand the context. Slavery during that time is just par- part of how society worked. It was part of their everyday lives. Um, a good way that I've heard this illustrated is try to think of the way we think about cars now. So every single one of us, we have experienced what it's like to ride a vehicle, ride a bus, ride a jeepney, ride a car of our own. And the thing about cars, automobiles, is that we have an awareness that it's not always good for the environment. The things that we ride, that's why it's always encouraged. If you could ride the bike, ride the bike. If you could commute together in in, in a bus instead of getting your own car, if it's just you, then go do that because it makes a difference, right? And so we, we have an awareness of this. However, you can't just snap your finger and then the next day, we won't use cars anymore. You can't protest not using cars. In fact, the very same people who talk about the environment who protest all of these things about the environment. They ride planes. They ride cars going from one place to another. It's just a necessary thing right now. Now, 2,000 years from now, maybe the future people will look back at us and see how primitive we are and see how we have been using these things that, that have been destroying the environment, if that is what it's doing. And, and, and they, they, they might look down on us and think, why are these people still using cars? How come they said nothing about, about, about demolishing cars, demolishing the structures that have held cars for so long? It's because... Cars are a part of how we function nowadays as a society. It's not that easy. Instead of just letting it go and stopping stopping everything productive that is being brought about transportation, what we need is something better. What we need is to go from what we have right now to what could be. And I don't know what that's going to look like. Maybe it's electric cars. Maybe it's something else. I have no idea. But... Throughout the time, the ancient time to our time today, there has been a shift. There has been a change in, in our economics, in our in the way we have our societies. In that, in where we live now, we have no need for slaves. And that is a good thing. And that is a good thing. And this is my argument. My argument is that Paul, in the way that he talked, to Philemon about welcoming Onesimus back not as a slave but as a brother, it reveals to us some of the values that would later on abolish slavery. This perspective of being welcomed back as a brother, of treating even those, even those who are under you as equal in terms of human dignity, maybe not equal in terms of wealth, maybe not equal in terms of possessions, maybe not equal in terms of class, but equal in terms of dignity. You are my brother. You are my sister. And there's something about that that underwhelms what is happening underneath, what is happening in the system of slavery during that time. Yes, Paul did not say anything about slavery outright as if he was protesting against slavery, but this one line 
is telling. The seeds of these values have been planted. And it bloomed. The thing about slavery is, let's not be too caught up with who has slavery and who has not slavery. Because in the ancient times, regardless of where you look, there is one form of slavery or another. We even had slavery here in the Philippines. It's not about who had slavery and who did not have slavery. It's about what led toward the abolishing of slavery. And I would like to say that it is values such as these. It is God's work. And you might think about it in this way. Try to imagine further. If he, Philemon, welcomes Onesimus back as a brother, then how do you think would that change the dynamic between him and his other slaves and his other servants? Because that will make an impact. I mean, this guy ran away. Ran away because he did something bad. Now, how about those other servants who did not run away? Would they still be treated as slaves and not as brothers? It would change the dynamic of the entire household. And remember, Philemon, he was a church leader. What, how would that change the dynamic of the people who were coming in, the other people who were entering in his house to have the Lord's Supper? How would that change their perspective as well, their values as well? This is something that they're bound to notice. Onesimus did not stop being a servant of Philemon, but their relationship changed. The way they regarded each other changed. And the reason behind that is the gospel, the truth, that we are all men and women made in the image of God. In fact, the origin of the term image of God reveals further to us. Image of God used to be a term that was used to refer to kings. They were the image bearers. They were the images of God. That's why you have the Pharaoh who is treated as a God king. You also see this in other places. You see this in Persia. You see this in Babylon. You see this in all of these different expressions. But the way Genesis tells its story, the way our Bible tells its story, is that it's not just the kings who are the image bearers. It's the people. It's you and me. It's us. This letter, this exhortation, this encouragement that was dedicated to one person had a bigger impact for sure. And that's the thing. That's the thing. This is one of the things that I value about the way we do discipleship, about relational discipleship. Because I think that the way to make big changes in our society, in our country, in the world, is by reaching one person at a time. I have met so many people who want social change. And that's good. You know, you want social change. There are things that are worth fighting for. There are inequalities that are worth taking down. However, it matters how we do it. And I believe, this is my own personal opinion, but I think that more than just changing the social structures of today, what matters even more are reaching the individuals. The change begins from one person, one person at a time. Because it doesn't matter if you change the system, if the people who are going to take the place of the leaders or the people who are going to take the place of 
the influential positions in society are still going to be just as bad as the ones before. Society is made up of individuals. And I really do think that the way towards social change, yes, sometimes you need to make bigger changes, sweeping changes. Yes, for sure, but I don't think that's enough. I think the way forward is the transformation of every individual heart as they come to know Jesus, as they see these values, as they grow in virtue, in love, in charity, in humility, in unity. I am all for wanting change. But how do we do it? How do we get there? That matters as well. Because oftentimes when I look to social media and see people talk in this way, much of what I see are finger pointing, are blame shifting. There's not enough responsibility. Personal responsibility. I have mentioned this before that... Part of the reason why I have a heart for the youth ministry, this is something that I've learned from my leaders as well, is that if you think about it, these young people that we're reaching now, they are young now and they don't seem to be very influential now, but that won't last for too long. These people that we're reaching in the universities, these people that we're reaching in their schools are going to be the future businessmen. They're going to be the future engineers. They're going to be the future doctors. They're going to be the future moms and dads. They're going to be the future priests. Are we reaching them enough to plant them in Christ right now so that they could grow in their faith and in their character so that when they get to that point of influence, when they grow and become older and seek further goals in their lives, are they going to be agents of good change? Or are they going to make things worse? I'd like to end this by focusing on the last part that Paul says in his letter. He says in verse 17 onward, So, if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Now, who does that sound like? The one who had nothing to do with the fault of Onesimus is willing to pay the price, is willing to do what it takes to pay back, to win him back, so that he would be treated no longer as a slave, but as a brother. Who does that sound like? In his letter and in his gesture, Paul here is imaging the kind of love that Jesus has. I will repay it. The kind of love that is willing to take responsibility for the people that they care about, even though they're not really involved. Even though it's not their fault. Even though it's much easier to just demand accountability and to just Ask others to do something about it. Those things are important too. But the way the way our faith directs us is by us reflecting the kind of love that Jesus has for the people that we care about. By making the sacrifice play when we have to. 
by getting ourselves involved in situations, in problems that would be more convenient if we weren't involved. But because we care and because we, we want to help out, we try to reach out. We try to reach out not by forcing, but by loving. But by loving. It is this kind of treatment. It is this kind of willingness and self-sacrificial love that set the early Christians apart from the rest of the world. They had something that was different. They preached the gospel with their words and with their actions, and it showed. It showed with their generosity. It showed with their charity. It showed with how they treated one another as brothers and sisters. The story of Philemon and Onesimus seems very small. It seems very small if you take into consideration the bigger story that is happening in Scripture, the bigger story of our faith, but there's a reason why it's there. There's a reason why it's included in our New Testament. And maybe right now you feel that way too, that your story is small. And what can you do? Maybe that's something that you're thinking about. But if you can reach one, then you can make a difference. You don't have to change the lives of thousands of people. Although if you can, then that would be great. But I think the first step is for us to look toward the people who are already around us. Look to your circle. How can you love them better? How can you show them the love of Christ better? And see from there. And see from there. That is it for today. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening all the way until the end. And if this is something that is helping you, please do help us by sharing this on your social media, sharing this with a friend, sharing this with a family member, this episode and this podcast as a whole. I am doing my best for me to be able to give you something worthwhile, for me to be able to give you something valuable that will help you in your own faith journey and will help you look at the world that is seemingly secular, but really it's not. With the eyes of our faith and the perspective of knowing Christ. Anyway, that's all I have for you today. See you next week. Bye.